Welcome to Sattva Himalayan Wisdom. Starting our new series, The Inquiry Sessions, where Anand is joined by Sattva Master Teachers. In this episode, Jeff Rube joins to discuss Yoga Vedantic traditions and teachings. Hello, Nanji. Welcome. Welcome to today's episode where we're going to embark on a conversation to help us navigate the many pathways of spiritual understanding, you know, from the distinctions between like tradition and lineages to the different diverse practices and in their place in our modern world. So I just really wanted to like, you know, delve deep into a few things to really discern like, you know, how information and the ever evolving role of the spiritual teachers like really coming to light. So can you help us? understand first of all like just the difference between or if there is a difference between like tradition and a lineage and you know what what is the thing that distinguishes a tradition and a lineage you see of course all understandings can be subjective but uh, from being born and raised in in the himalayas and studying with the with the guru from the birth from my understanding, the way we see it is an understanding based on unity. Of course, one can have an interpretation which is based on divisiveness and uh, one-upmanship, which is contrary to the underlying desire of all the masters, because the underlying desire of the masters of our tradition is to create unity within and without. We cannot be speaking of unity on an internal plane while constantly pushing separation, isolation on the external plane. So from the unity understanding, there is the spiritual tradition of humanity. Now within, somehow mysteriously, within the human field reality, something truly special happened in India. First, India, Bharat as we call it, truly is one of the, if not the oldest, but one of the oldest continuously existing civilization, an ancient civilization. So human beings have gathered in that, lived in that, com- in, in communities and, and in uh, being together for long, long time. And so as a result of that, there has been a phenomenal search and subsequent realization for the fundamental truths governing life. And that is this search and the subsequent realization is what has given birth to the phenomenal spiritual tradition of India. For us, when we look as true Bharatiya, people who are coming from Sanatana, Dharma, the spiritual heritage that India has to offer to the world is the greatest gift that India has really offered to the world. It is this living tradition which grew because of incredible masters and teachers all coming together and people. I mean, masters are all first students. My guru always said that we are not a golden chain of teachers, but a golden chain of students. And so these masters and teachers and students all have come together and explored 
and so it gave rise to as you when you realize something it naturally gives rise to your desire to share it with others and so that gave what we call the oral tradition now the oral tradition predates the written tradition always now when we begin to explore the written tradition we have to realize that the oral tradition predates the written tradition and it still supports the written tradition the written tradition is not the primary it is secondary the oral is primary so the whole indian tradition we can call it yogic vedic sanatana the word that is used now which has been used is sanatana meaning the eternal way sanatan dharma so meaning the the eternal way hmm. as we look at uh, this tradition there is phenomenal range of scriptures within it so it become this whole living tradition oral and written become this one huge river and who contributes to it all masters and teachers they draw from it and contribute to it they draw from it and contribute to it and that's why it still continues so when you're looking even on the written level there is the vedas within the vedas there is brahmanas aryankas upanishads then we have veda anga we have upavedas parallel to that we have agamas tantras we have bhashyas later on written on the vedas on the upanishads we have puranas and the sixth different darshana so on and so forth this voluminous right vedas are voluminous upanishads are voluminous voluminous you know even when we speak about gita is not just one gita there is many gitas mm. when you talk about tantra there is not one tantra there is voluminous scriptures which are categorized as tantra within tantra there is not one tantra tradition there is shaiva there is shakta there is uh, vaishnava shakta where divine mother is the, the primordial reality spoken of in context of feminine shaiva where the primordial reality spoken of in the context of shiva hmm. vaishnava where the primordial reality spoken of within the context of vishnu narayana and so these are all supporting each other they are being they are born out of a shared realization just like science when you look at science what you call the current science it has built on findings of different scientists different researchers it is a living and that's why science works yeah there is a reason science works because there is a natural sharing of discoveries and one builds on the other's discovery and sometimes there might be differences in what they realize but if you have openness and your main intention is to serve humanity and to evolve the body of knowledge then progress happens so for example einstein einstein you know whose work indirectly became responsible for quantum physics quantum mechanics the new science he did not accept it for the longest time yeah that does not make quantum physics 
not true even though einstein why science works is because there can be a sharing of knowledge there can be sharing of resources and that's what the spiritual tradition of india is it's not one person just writing one book and saying okay this is it there is not a prophetic tradition right so there is not one book and we say okay this is the only book or one teacher and this is the only teacher and that's how it's going to be why because he or she said so 1000 years ago or 2000 years ago these are the 10 things and that's how exactly it has to be because if that's our understanding of spirituality that's not spirituality that becomes regressive religion hmm. the difference between religion and spirituality is that spirituality evolves grows it's open it's not closed it's about love not hatred the moment you become closed you start generating hatred mm. in order to protect your closed system you have to generate hatred in the hearts of the people who you have trapped inside that closed system yeah and so if we see religion the intention of religion was to help humanity and to to bring people together but as we can see in current times a lot of more and more people are not identifying themselves as religious that does not mean that they have lost left the sense of sacred they're still looking for the sacred and they're in genuinely interested in the deeper questions of life but they have moved away from this idea of violence separation hatred because it doesn't work and being non-inclusive and non-inclusive mm. so the indian tradition it's a living tradition so it's one huge river and then from that river you know and this river has all oral tradition in it it has all written tradition in it so if you look at if you go to india now a day an indian person sanatan dharma person who is deeply spiritual like my parents i grew up in a very spiritual household people who are deeply practitioners you know deeply immersed in the tradition yeah you look at them they are practicing the whole right so they will get up they will do their dincharya snan dhyan they will take certain remedies from ayurveda they will go into their dhyana meditation they will go do their puja huh? they will uh, practice pranayama breath work kriya asana depending on where they are at their own abilities on and so forth then they will go out you know they will every now and then engage in kirtan they will organize kirtans they will go with you know they will go out and serve people and do god of their way to help other people right yeah they will uh, have spiritual communities so they are living the whole teaching the whole teaching the whole spectrum and that's why they can live well yeah right if you don't realize it then you start to confuse then there is a big limitation right so when we are looking at this whole thing as i said the tradition it is a tradition which is includes all the written when we are talking about vedas you know within the vedas upanishad the the aryankas and all the sutras later on and the agamas and the tantras and the puranas and the vedangas and upavedas all of it yeah and it also includes the oral tradition of different masters their contribution like you know vivekananda swami shivananda saraswati shankaracharya great master paramahansa yogananda shri yukteswar baba ji anandamoyi ma meera hmm. you know Yeah. All these great gems, Kalidasa, hmm? Kabira, such rich, yeah. Gautam Buddha, Mahavira, 
Yeah. So when you look at that, you realize, oh, wow, such richness. And these are not separate. My Master Maharaj such amazing richness. It's a tradition of love, living tradition. And now from there, naturally, different masters will arise. Yeah. Who's, who will be acquired by the cosmos, who will be directed by existence, is thy will through me. Mm. Who will say, who will go out and teach. That does not mean only the ones who are going out and teaching other teachers. There are many, countless, yeah. who are teaching silently, who are teaching without the title. Their life is their teaching. But naturally, because the diversity is the law of nature, some of these beings who are part of this tradition, living and born there, why they all come from India? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because they are born in this river. Yeah. So they are being fed. Shankaracharya is born in, in a small town in Kerala. He's being fed. Yeah. So he gets nurtured. Vivekananda is in Calcutta. He gets nurtured. He's born. He meets Swami Ramakrishna Paramahansa, Kali devotee. He meets, he gets embraced and gets nourished by this tradition. Then he gets up, evolves, grows yeah. up. And then nature says, okay, you must go out and teach. Yes. Now the teachers arise from this tradition who are being fed by this. But it becomes, obviously, they are all geniuses. They are going to be teaching to a particular people, to a particular time. And they will the teachings will channel through them based on their own I amness because the underlying I amness is the same. Yeah. But what gets expressed is unique and different. So even though, so for example, Vivekananda is the student of Ramakrishna Paramahansa, the teaching of Vivekananda is very different than the teaching of Ramakrishna. Yeah. But where does Vivekananda come from? From that tradition of India. The teachings of Yogananda are different from Sri Yukteswar or Lahiri. Yeah. But where do they all come from? One, does Yogananda bow to Sri Yukteswar? He bows to Lahiri as his guru. Yeah. But Yogananda went to America. He taught to a particular people, to a particular audience. He was teaching in America. Or Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Same. He studied in India. He was born in Madhya Pradesh. He stayed there for till he was a grown-up man. Then he came to Rishikesh, slowly went up to Joshimat, studied there. Now he studied the whole. But yeah. he went, he was starting to teach to a specific people. Then he moved to the West. He taught to a particular people to a particular time. Now these teachers who emerge from that tradition, they start to teach. They teach a student. That student teaches a student. So that's we call a lineage. Right. Yeah. Right? Lineage is what? Who did you learn from? Right. It's very simple. Yeah. This all it's not an ego thing. It's a very practical, intelligent thing. Yeah. Oh, this idea, my lineage is the highest lineage. Your this is what is this ego? Yeah. You follow me or not? Yeah, this is yeah, absurd. Yeah. Relax. Yeah. Don't forget the whole point. The point is to move in the direction of love, to move in the direction of unity. You cannot preach unity and constantly Propagate, separation, egocentrism, one-upmanship. This is absurd. Yeah. And do not call it that it is the Indian tradition. No. The tradition of India is the tradition of unity. Yeah. That is the Sanatana Dharma. That is why it's called Sanatana Dharma. That is why it works. Because there is not one prophet, not one book. The teachings are for everybody. Hmm. And all the teachers are united. Yeah. So the lineage is for teachers. So now... When you're tracing a lineage, you're tracing what? 
okay, how are you connected to the source, this living source? So if somebody goes to America and then he teaches another American who teaches another American, then they say, oh, I studied from this American who studied with this American who studied with this, who studied with this Indian teacher. Yeah. Right? So you're really looking at who are the living teachers yeah. you studied with. And ultimately, when you claim a teacher, you studied with one teacher, mostly, sometimes. Maybe that's your main teacher. Yeah. But that does not mean that's all you can have many teachers. Yeah. So, for example, as I was saying, in the case of uh, Armansa Yogananda, he brings these teachings, but he teaches to a particular audience. He, he teaches a particular thing, aspect of the teaching. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi teaches, he teaches a particular aspect of the teaching. Vivekananda goes and he teaches a particular aspect of the teaching. And is that aspect because of the consciousness state of the people that they're teaching to at the time or that they're ready to Absolutely. receive? Absolutely. Yeah. Because they are geniuses. Yeah. These are brilliant people. They are fulfilling elegantly the need of the hour. This is our base teaching. You have to see, okay, what the people are ready for. I mean, we have to be naive to think the 1960s are the same time. Yeah. As the 2022. Yeah. Is this the same world? No, it's not. Yeah. To think that, oh, when uh, Vivekananda first went, the great master Vivekananda first went to America and he was one of the first in the contemporary times, the first Indian master who went to the West. This is before even Dalai Lama came, right? Yeah. Uh, who came to the West to teach, right, in the contemporary times. In the late 1800s. Right. Before this is before even Yogananda. It was a very different world. So he had he had to give a very specific message. He could only and again he lived only uh, for till he was in you know, early thirties. In his thirties, so he gave a teaching to a particular people at a particular time. Times change. Then you bring out different aspects of the teachings, and then you bring out different aspects of the teaching. Right. With the, the hope is that evolution is the consistent part, and as you're evolving, then people's ability to absorb. The knowledge, their readiness to absorb the knowledge increases. Yeah. So we are living in a time which is more open. We are living in a time where there is greater sharing of knowledge. Now, even in the West, there is, you know, you can get on a plane, get there quicker. You know, you had to get on a boat. It took you months. Yeah. And there was still a lot of strong religious uh, structures which were easily threatened by these teachings. So they had to bring it in a very specific manner. And so what they share is depending upon who they are sharing to, what are the people, and also what are they individually inspired by. Yeah. You know, what are they individually inspired by? What aspect of the teaching they are most they feel most charmed to share. Yeah. But that does not mean, like let's say somebody studied in Harvard, for example, went to Harvard, and then he came out of Harvard, and then he taught a student. And he studied in Harvard and let's say he studied English literature. I don't know if they teach that. I'm just yeah. making it up. Yeah. Uh, so let's say they went to a university, you know, went to a big university. And in, within that university, they studied in a college. Within that college, they studied English lit course of English literature. And within literature, they really fell in love with Shakespeare. They went out from the college and the university started teaching Shakespeare. Some student came, they taught not one student, they taught 30, 40, 100 students, 200 students, 1,000 students. Then one student from there felt, oh, I will also teach Shakespeare. Yeah. There were thousands of them studying also. One said, I will also teach Shakespeare. He felt so inspired and charmed by it. And he started to teach also Shakespeare. Do you follow me? Or not? Yeah. It would be naive to say 
that the whole of the university's tradition, all that the university teaches is Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. say, oh, the lineage of Harvard or the lineage of this university, spiritual university of India is Shakespeare. Yeah. So Shakespeare is what you learned from a particular teacher because that's what he felt charmed to teach and that's beautiful. Yeah. Shakespeare is beautiful, wonderful. But to say the whole, not just the whole, even if you just say just the whole of English literature is only Shakespeare, that's a, would be not a correct, that does not take away from the genius of Shakespeare. Shakespeare is truly genius English writer. Yeah. But there are other writers. Just to talk about English literature, yes or no? Yeah. And then what the university is teaching, if you think, no, no, only English literature, that is the tradition of this university and I keep claiming that. Yeah. That is... <laughs> Just points to my misunderstanding. No, right? So the Indian tradition is the tradition of unity, of vast. It is a tradition of geniuses. That's why it works. You see, it's yeah. not a belief system. It's not a reductionist system. Yeah, it is a. It addresses every aspect of life, every questions of life. It takes the whole being of human experience into consideration. Yeah, there is not one book on any. There are multiple books. There is not one Upaveda. Yeah. There are many Upavedas. There is not one Veda Anga. There are many Veda Angas. There is not one Gita. There is many Gita. There is not one Tantra. There is many Tantra. There is not one Agama. And these are not saying separate. Oh, these are confusion. No, this is not confusion. It's yeah. just like science. Yeah. Right? Science, when you study science, it's a lot. But all of it comes together and makes your life. You know, you're using science every day. Yeah. When you use iPhone... You're using many, there is a hardware engineering there, there is software engineering there, there is all kinds of technology has gone into just a simple device as a phone. Same thing, this is of tradition which phenomenal knowledge. When you study it, separately, yes. But when you start to, it seems separate, but actually when you go in, you start, oh, it's actually all interconnected. Yeah. And it makes your life richer. This is what tradition is. This one living tradition. Within that tradition, different teachers emerge. Those teachers teach different students, and some of those students from those students become teachers, and then they say, Oh, lineage, lineage, lineage. Yeah, right. But it is not a lineage, it's just a humble recognition of your teacher. Right. It's a humble recognition of your teacher. Yeah. Because the tradition of reverence. This is not a recognition of competitiveness. Oh, my guru is more enlightened than your guru. What a joke this is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 my guru is you know is the queen enlightened my guru is at the queen level of enlightenment your guru is not at the queen level <laughs> yeah no and i feel that you know in these times at the moment it's been it's been you know spirituality is being seen to it's coming across a lot more people like obviously we've got social media which is like accessing you know i look at younger people these days that are really accessing stuff so everyone's on this like search for well what's the truth and where do I find the truth in all of that? You know, so that's why I felt like it was yes. important to understand that because because there is this search. Like once you start the search, I know for myself, you know, I was someone who once I went on that search for spirituality, it was like, oh, I went and tapped into a few different things to look for what felt like the truth at the time. And, you know, and then it was just, and then since then it's also been this whole self-discovery part, like as you get into the practices and discovered your, you know, the integrated practices and things like that as well, Absolutely. where, you know, obviously it started with meditation and then it grew into other things. Yeah. And then, um, you know, it was this whole journey of like self-discovery, which then, 
you know, I feel lucky to be someone who met you, for example, like, you know, a long time ago, but then it was also, you know, I, I often think about other people who are going through their life and being exposed to many different forms of it. And how do they find what's truth and what's not truth, for example? You see, truth is a no man's land. It does not belong to one person. Truth cannot belong to one person. How can that be true then? If the truth belongs to one person, it cannot be truth. Yeah. By definition, truth must belong to everyone and no one simultaneously. Because truth cannot belong to a particular... Truth is its own. It stands on its own right. You can belong to truth, but truth cannot belong to you. That is the Indian tradition of spirituality. If I say, I am the only one who speaks the truth, then there is some problem with me. Yeah. Yes? That is a fundamental definition of a fanatic. A fanatic is someone who thinks he or she only speaks the truth and everybody else does not. Yeah. That is not, doesn't work. Yeah. So we cannot, no one has the copyright on truth. We can tune ourselves to discover truth. When we start to discover truth, we can start to belong to truth. And where does truth live? It lives within you. That's where truth lives, ultimately. And so the more you discover that dimension within yourself, you start to become part of that living truth. Your life becomes that. And so I don't think one should be too much afraid of, is it true or is it not? One should go and liven within themselves, you know, and and begin to realize that truth does not belong to a particular individual, to a particular group, to a particular, you know, sect, to a particular. No, no. Truth stands. And you know, our job as you tune yourself, as you evolve, as you grow, you discover truth. That is our fundamental nature. Sat, Chit, Ananda. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So truth stands on its own. So the, ultimately the tr search for truth is the search for yourself. As you align yourself, then you start to live from truth. That is the key. And that's really all part of the integrated practice. Right? Yeah, the, the whole yogic tradition and integrated is, is the path of integration. Yeah, and I think that's where there's been confusion a lot as well. You know, it's like, you know, people claim like, oh, this is the way, like going down there. Like we said before, it wasn't just one thing. It's like the whole tradition. But I think that, not the whole tradition, like the whole, you know, array of like te technologies that are available to us to be able to access that, that inner state of bliss within all of us and to access that, that inner knowing. And, you know, because as Westerners, especially, we're always taught that there's like, oh, it's, this is, this is the magic pill that will get you the... Thing, yeah, everyone's wish, looking for the magic pill, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I so wish there like, was a magic pill, <laughs> yeah, right? Then yeah. we would just have it and give it all and that's all we need to do, take that <laughs> yeah. magic pill once a day or twice a day or three times a day. Yeah. But there is no such thing. And yeah. anybody who's selling that is not being correct. Yeah. It's an incorrect understanding. You know, our, in my experience, being having the privilege of being with these amazing masters through Maharaji and with him and also through him, right? Because our tradition was very open. With Maharaji, I met so many great masters. So when I studied, they did not say, this is the only way. Only way. No. This is, this is the way. Mm. Right? 
This is what we share. This is what they teach. If this works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's also okay. Yes? Yeah. You can explore more. Yeah. That's a very healthy way of being. Yes or no? Yeah. Another, that this is one of the, this is a part of the way, an aspect of the whole. You embody this, learn, and then you keep growing and learning more. If I start to say to you, either of these two students, first, anybody teacher will say, this is the only way. There is no other way. This is the only way. This is all you need. Then that is, again, fanaticism. My fanaticism is what? My way, my God is the only God. Yeah. My interpretation of God is the only truth. Anything outside of that is not. Do you yeah. follow me? Or not? Yeah. That's lower, yeah. lower. Yeah. So then what we did, burn libraries as a, yes or no? Yeah. And they came to Greece, let's burn the library of Alexandria. Burn, burn it. Why? Because lower, it's lower. It's, it doesn't, there is, it does not deserve to exist because it's lower. Yeah. Dehumanized it. It's yeah. not right. Or we say that this is all you need and you should not learn anything outside of it. Yeah. Do you follow? Yeah. This is all you need and you shouldn't. That's a backward thinking. If we study, go to science. And if, let's say, you studied, you know, the works of uh, Galileo, you know, who's considered one of the first scientists of the contemporary times. Yeah. Right? You study the words of, or, you know, there was a time when Aristotle was in the Western Hemisphere. This is when India was writing all phenomenal treaties. There was Aristotle was the philosopher for a long time. Yeah. When, before Galileo came and then challenged him. And let's say you, all, you were taught, no, 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 only Aristotle you must learn. Only what he says you must learn. Only that. And if you go outside of it, then you are spoiling the knowledge. Yeah. then science wouldn't have grown. We would still be, you know, going around in buggies. Nothing wrong. I love the buggies. Yeah. But it is helpful if you have to go from Australia to India to have a plane, not a buggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or even to record this podcast. There would be no, not a possibility of recording the podcast if we had to all just say, no, no, Aristotle is it. Yeah. So, so the, the other teachings are within the tradition. This is what we share. Yeah, so even when you read autobiography of yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda is just speaking about Kriya as this super science and beautifully. But he's also within the autobiography, he's talking about all these different teachers. Mm, yeah. Yes or no? Yeah. In the autobiography, it's actually less about him, but more about these phenomenal beings that he met, including Ma, Ananda Mahima. Yeah. It's this beautiful picture of Ananda Mahima standing there with this magnificent, you know, hypnotizing smile. And he's standing there with this phenomenal gaze. Yeah. And when you study mass teachings, they're very different. Yes or no? Yes. yes. And then Yogananda. But they are different? No, they are one. You follow me? Yeah. No? And so, when we look at this, we can say, okay, this is an aspect of the teaching. You absorb this and you keep going. Yes yeah. or no? You go. Or this is what I share. If it works for you, great. Yeah. It's not also okay. So yeah. Then we remain healthy as people, as community, as teachers. Yeah. If we start to be too much controlling, separating, it is not healthy. It is not healthy. And really, like, as teachers, we need to be on this perpetual journey of, like, learning as well, right? Because a lot of times I feel that 
you know, some teachers get to certain points or, you know, or we sometimes feel that as a teacher, like, oh, I know this stuff now and I don't need to, you know, learn anymore, even though we're always need to be learning. But there are, um, you know, times when people feel like, you know, oh, I know all this stuff now, but we know that consciousness, you know, it doesn't (laughs) stop. It continues to grow. But there's, I mean, that's just part of the human condition. Absolutely. So it's like, um, you know, and I feel it's important for teachers to understand that, you know, when we were talking about having different gurus or teachers or people that we like come into contact with to be able to start looking at things like from a big timeline perspective of like, and holistically rather than getting just caught up in one thing because it's good to challenge ourselves, even if it, you know, it might not be right to go down a certain point or we do what feels right for us because it would be right to say that consciousness is always leading us to like where we kind of need to go if we really start listening to that inner voice that's inside of us and we pick up whatever way we need to at the time. And so even just as teachers, people who are teachers, like really need to be conscious of the fact that we need to be constantly learning because that's what's keeping us current and evolutionary and, you know, um, really helping us gain perspective on the whole, on the unity that you were explaining before. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I always say time is the only constant in the relative field of reality, even though we are that, but we are also this. You know, as in the Ishavashya Upanishad, the Rishi declares, the ones who deny that, the absolute, transcendental field, roam in darkness. But those who deny this, the relative eminent, roam even in greater darkness. Mm. Right? Because these are not two separate. So when we declare Aham Brahmasmi, it is the Aham which is in the relative field claiming the eternal timeless. So we find ourselves in time and time is change. So either we change progressively or we will change regressively. Change is a must. So that's why we do not speak really in our teachings, uh, the way I studied, of enlightenment as an end game. Mm. Because that's just a strange idea to me. To speak of enlightenment as an end game is another carrot hanging in front of you. And then you're never there. And if you are there, then it's even a bigger problem. <laughs> because if you are enlightened, then the point is you do not claim enlightenment ultimately. Because then the whole idea of you being enlightened is disappeared. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so enlightenment, the way we see it, it's you just it's a living experience of you evolving, gaining greater and greater unity. Unity is not a static phenomena. Mm. It's a dynamic phenomena of unfolding greater love. Is you cannot say, I love you and that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I love you. No. In love, you have to learn. So the, the, the more you love, the more you learn. So evolution is a must. Growth, knowledge, growth in yourself is a must. We must grow. And if we cease to grow and learn, then we come into trouble. You know? Yeah. That's it. Then becomes troublesome. And so it... As far as now roles are concerned, let's say there is a person who is teaching guitar. And he teaches young kids guitar from age 3 to 10. And that's beautiful. He teaches guitar. And he says, I'm going to teach guitar from the age 3 to 10 year old, 4 to 10 year old. And that's what he does. Yeah. And that's wonderful. He, but he still has to grow as a person. 
doesn't mean that now he has to teach you know he has to go and say i'm going to teach jimmy page and i'm going to you know i'm going to teach uh, no he can still be teaching those but then he has to say okay i'm teaching 4 to 10 year old now the 10 year old learns guitar and now he's progressed further and he's going to learn more now the teacher says no 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 you only need to learn till what i have taught you yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's all the guitar you need yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing this you're well, playing heck, these riffs now yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're playing this strong lead and how are you innovating <laughs> why are you creating your own tracks yeah. you must learn what i have taught you only you must play only those tracks yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. <laughs> right, sure. and so yeah. and so when you have to look at this, the growth is constant. And as a teacher, you can realize I'm growing as a being. But what I share with the world, I'm gonna share this, and that's what I feel comfortable with mm. as a skill of what I generate. Also, to be practical about, you have to. You're living in a market reality. You still have you pay your bills, and you still have to you know support your family and all of that. And that's wonderful. As a, whether you are. doing that as a chef or you're doing that as a musician as you or you're doing that as a copywriter whatever you're choosing to do right yeah but you have to still grow if you want to be joyous in life yeah and if you have to not be in conflict with the times because if the times are changing and that the need for the time is for you to grow and evolve and you're not growing and evolving you're just remaining same in all levels of your being all levels of your being then you're going to be in conflict with the times Yeah. Right. So as a, I always advise. You know, that's how I've been taught to keep learning, keep growing, and keep evolving. And do not to assume that you know that uh, everybody in the world has to listen with the study with that same music teacher. No? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, to to the degree of the music teacher, and not, cannot grow beyond what the music teacher is teaching. Yeah. That does not mean that the the music teacher who is teaching. might not be able to play who's teaching fourth standard to 10th four year old to 10 year old might not be able to play you know or let's say let's say or steve vai or you know any more com- or jazz yeah uh, guitar for you know he still might have all that skill and he can still play that yeah but he's choosing this yeah he's choosing to teach this because that's where he feels i'm going to teach four to 10 years old yeah and that's wonderful yeah <laughs> You know what I'm saying, yeah. but that would be incorrect. That he says no only to the the skill I have taught, and then a kid who let's say leaves te- learning guitar at ten after ten years from this teacher, and then starts teaching, also, and says only that. Yeah, <laughs> that would be naive. Yeah, because we're all on our own individual path <laughs> and our own individual journey, right? So it's like you know we're not all we just to be the same. To, Life would yeah, be boring. Yeah, we have to really learn properly. Yeah, we have to be very aware of the ego hijacking, and we have to be aware of sometimes when you bring you know things to the market, the forces of the market can take over. Yeah, the market forces of competitiveness and and seeing okay is he or she taking you know how they teach in economics, uh, pie the piece of the pie or oh, is that company taking that more piece of the pie than we have to do marketing and sometimes marketing is essential when you bring anything to the market. Yeah, teachings included. Yeah, but uh, unnecessary false marketing not needed. Yeah, uh, creating, trying to create a whole false narrative around it, not then it makes your product fail. Yeah, sooner. <laughs> so another question that I really had was about you know especially with these ancient Indian traditions and lineages and. That have been around for a long time, like we the role of the internet 
and how we've, you know, really evolved in that way in terms of being able to reach like so many more people. And, you know, there's also, there's lots of different teachers as well. And some say like, yes, use the internet. And other people go like, no, we shouldn't use the internet. Like, you know, when you think, well, uh, did we not use the internet because it didn't exist back then or like, and now it does. So in terms of like, I understand that, you know, there's certain things that you wouldn't put on the internet, for example, like, you know, um, certain careers and all that kind of stuff as well, which is completely understandable. But like, where is the, where is the line drawn in terms of like, of understanding just as, as a teacher myself, like knowing like, you know, how to know like what part should be allowed to be taught on the internet, for example, and what stuff shouldn't. I think that's that comes from maturity as a teacher and maturity somebody who truly understands you know then you know it's a uh, very clear that you know what should be shared openly just like within the context of our teachings within the sattva we you know there are practices within the kriya and, and which we teach openly and it can be in open classes anybody can come breath work and all of that because it it is designed to to meet people at that level. But then there are certain practices which are purely even mantras which we don't share openly, which have to be shared in a very specific setting, in an initiation setting, in a more closed format teaching. Mm-hmm. Because they have a certain level of potency that requires much more framework, much more preparation around that. Right. So it's like for certain bija mantras, we don't uh, sing them or chant them out use them in a specific manner yeah because there is a framework like when we're teaching a certain sadhana that requires a certain close structure because it requires certain preparation and uh, proper understanding and so it's taught in that manner right so that requires maturity in understanding to i think the again you know i, I always say if buddha was alive he would be you know he would have a website and he would have you know his schedule on there because he was a very busy person, right? Yeah. When he realized his own Buddha nature, he was teaching all the time. He was traveling. Yeah. And so how did people know that Buddha was there? Now he's going to be, you know, in this Vana and he's going to be teaching. Well, they used at that time, you know. Uh, Teletext. Yeah, they used the the first GPS, you know, the, yeah. the global people positioning system. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just people were, okay, oh, Buddha is here, Buddha is here, Buddha is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so they told each other and then people found each other, right? Yeah. Or they put posters in, in Pali, <laughs> or maybe used uh, leaves and they hung it on the homes at that time, right? Yeah. That he's there, he's here and so he's going to be here for this time, right? So that's how people gathered. How would otherwise people gather? So he would, if he was in body now, he would be on also on the internet and uh, maybe tweeting now. Sorry, he can't tweet now. Xing, as I think it's called now, or what do you call it? Because it's not Twitter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, he would be, you know, he would have a website. He would probably be on social media for to know people, to let people know where he's at. Yeah. But that's the role of the internet. But then again, he would have certain aspect to really go deep. The analog is the primary reality. I think that's very important to realize that the digital reality should not become the primary reality for mm-hmm. us human beings. When the digital reality, I think, becomes the primary reality, then we get unhinged. It's not good for our mental well-being. It's not good for our physical well-being. Our, we have to realize the analog reality is the primary, and the digital is great to support it. Great yeah. aid, great way to learn, great way to also teach and initiate people into some aspects of the teaching. Because it increases our reach so much. Yeah. And it gives people who are, you know, just like in COVID time, we could bring some of the teachings online and it helped people. I mean, I'm so still being touched by it. 
as just even here traveling in Australia, so many people coming and they said, thank you so much for putting these teachings online because, you know, it's really saved my life. Yeah. And it's so deep, you know, it moves me so deeply. Yeah. So many people have come, they've written to us. Yeah. And and some of them, like, not just because of COVID, they said, we couldn't, we've been, we've been wanting to come, but because having children and I couldn't. And so I could learn and now practice this and it's really changed my life for the better. And nothing is more rewarding than that to know that you can make and have a positive impact on someone's life. Yeah. It's one of the greatest gifts. So I think internet has a powerful role and it's a powerful uh, tool. So that comes with maturity. When you have wide spectrum of teaching again, let's, you know, when there is naturally some parts of the teaching which we teach openly, which we are very well suited to be shared online. Yeah. And then there are certain aspects of the teaching which are not. But that, you know, let's say you're teaching only very specific aspect, then it might not uh, translate very well into teaching online. Yeah. Right? But in our teaching, we're teaching a full spectrum approach so within the integrated practice of sattva. There are naturally some aspects of the teachings, practices, techniques, which translate very well and can very easily be shared in open format teaching. Uh, when I say open format, meaning even in the analog reality that anybody can come, people who have, you know, and they can have a profound experience and it can create a doorway yeah. uh, for their own inner experience of illumination and also for, for the internet. Then there are certain aspects which are not. And that requires maturity in teaching and you to have living access to living tradition where you are able to check with your teachers, you know. Mm. Like I had the checked with my elders, okay, this is the what we are facing that time. Now, if we keep, we do not adapt the teaching to the time, then, you know, it goes out. It goes out. Yeah. Because then whatever is being shared becomes the dominant thing. Yeah. Right? So, in order to be, for people to have access, they're looking on the internet and if we don't have it available there, then it ceases to fulfill the purpose it is designed to do, which is to serve, yeah. to help human beings gain their own true potential. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. I was also just wanting to understand the Shankaracharya tradition as well. Like, you know, specifically, I know you've got a course coming out soon as well. Like that's, you know, it really explains it. But I was just really wanting to understand, you know, that tradition, whether it's really part of, um, you know, how like the Pope is the overarching body of, you know, the Catholic Church, for example, then is the Shankaracharya tradition or the Shankaracharya per se the overarching person? Or again, you see, that is what is important to understand. There is a temptation amongst humanity, especially in the West, to look for a prophet. Do you follow me? Yeah. To look for the ultimate one. The ultimate one is not locatable in form. Yeah? There is no one. So, Shankaracharya is a phenomenal light in this marvelous field of lights that is the Indian spiritual tradition. He was a great master, as was Patanjali as was Vivekananda, as was Paramahansa Yogananda, as was Sri Yukteswar, as is Anandamoyi Ma, 
as is the great Meera, as is Kalidasa, Vyasa, so Swami Shivananda, many great masters. Adiguru Shankaracharya played a powerful role. You know, he was a true genius, a truly remarkable being. He was born in 8th, 7th, 8th century. That's when he lived, current era. And uh, it was a very specific time in India, uh, you know, uh, socially, culturally, what was happening in India. He was born in a very particular time. And so he uh, was like this child prodigy, right? So who, and again, his uh, parents, you know, I'll speak very in detail about Shankaracharya, his childhood and his, uh, where he studied, you know, like his master, Ganpati Muni, all these teachers that he studied with who were, you know, tantric masters and then how he traveled all over India and, you know, you even in his life of Shankaracharya, when you really study his life, you see in Shankaracharya as an individual first. He's an individual, right? In his individual's life, in his human life, we have to not take, in India, we don't feel like there is no reason to take the humanity out of the picture and just mm. to make him some kind of an alien being. No, he was a wonder, human being who had his own struggles, you know, when his mother died and how she, his father, by when he wanted to leave, his mother said, don't go. And he made a promise to his mother that when you die, I'll come back. And then he comes back and the people, you know, he had to chop up the body. And It's a very big story and we don't have the time to go into that. Yeah. But he, if you look at his life, the genius of his life, he he was born in, you know, in south of India. And then he traveled and studied, you know, he went toward Narmada and studied there and lived there for a while. And then he comes travels through India, starts to make his way up, comes into North India, stays in Varanasi and does studies there and writes his brilliant work, starts to write there. Then he goes all the way up, starts to make his way up to the Himalayas, you know, through Central India, up to the Himalayas, go to Kashmir and studies there and, and does his work there. And that's where he, you know, in Kashmir, he writes about Devi Sondarya Lahiri, one of his, you know, which is considered in Shakta Tantra, one of the main pieces of work, mm. you know, powerful. And then he comes, of course, in a, Rishikeshari and goes up and ultimately drops his body in Kedarnath, right? And if you look at his, even his bo great body of work, I mean, he was a so prolific writer. He wrote, first he wrote Bhasyas, which are the commentaries, right? On the Upanishads, right? right? He wrote the commentaries on the Upanishads, which were truly, truly remarkable, truly impactful. But then he also wrote chants, right? He wrote so many powerful, uh, he wrote so many devotional hymns also, right? Like Sri Ganesha Panchatram, Ganesha Bhujangam, Shubramanya Bhujangam, uh, Anandaleri, Devi Bhujangam, Bhavani Bhujangam, Sri Rama Bhujangam, mm, right. right? Yeah. Powerful Kirtan, which are still being chanted in India. Yeah. Still being used. Probably in Australia as well. Maybe. <laughs> in some places. You know, voluminous. I mean, it just goes on. The list goes on. Govinda Ashtakat, you know, Haristuti, Yamuna Ashtakam, Ganga Ashtakam, Manikarnika Ashtakam, Nirguna Manasha Puja. I mean, there's a huge list. Yeah. Just on the level of Stotram. And of course, then he wrote his uh, Granthas, Viveka Chudamani, and, uh, you know, Vakya Vritti, Atma Bodha. Really powerful. And so you're looking at this when you work. If you just study, let's say, Atma Bodha, or only, that's all you have studied of Shankaracharya. Yeah. You have no clue about his work on uh, on Devi on, in Sondarya Lahiri. Yeah. Or you have no clue of his, you know, Shivananda Lahiri, where he's speaking on Shiva. You have no clue of the Bhajanga, you know, Ganesha Sotra, where he's chanting about Ganesha. 
you think no no shankara's teaching is only atma bodha mm-hmm. atma bodha meaning cognizing the atman right yeah do you follow me yeah but when you really look at his you know he writes commentaries on the gita he writes i mean it's powerful yeah, it's like amazing body of work yeah exactly it's so it's not just one mm. you know if you like you might read like shakespeare and think he just wrote you know merchant of venice oh is you know merchant of venice in current times is not a very it's not a comedy it's more of a tragedy yeah. of shylock right yeah um, and so you might think or you might come out a very strange picture of of shakespeare but if you lo- study the same with shankaracharya when you look he's an incredible true genius and then when he travels he walks he was so active he walked all over india established these four cardinal direction mathas right the four pithas he established and uh, within all the pithas that he established his four mahavakyas attached to the four directions of india yeah and in every of his pitha there is a devi first right so there is a temple dedicated to devi and on the top of the every of the temple there is a shri yantra you follow me who established that shri adiguru shankaracharya right. established this shri yantra you follow yeah and he established devi so even though he has written commentaries on vedanta on advaita but that does not mean that if you think oh advaita aham brahmasmi and when he says in the in the sondarale bhavanitvam this is also mahavakya bhavanitvam in the sondarale that bhavanitvam this is beautiful that you are all bhavani right. yes or bhavani who you are also bhavani he's saying to you to me you are also bhavani so you are the great mother but bhavanitvam mother you are the only thing is that now a lie <laughs> yeah no this is only somebody who does not fully understand yeah who just gets lost in the words who does not have the experience then this confusion arises yeah he was a true genius and so as he traveled he established mind you he is not the prophet yes yeah. he is one of the great teachers within this incredible tradition of indian spirituality powerful being and one of the things which he did was establishing this for peters and then establishing 10 monastic there was monastic order so he created a structure he categorized them within dashnami 10 orders and so he created you know he also the, there was a monastic order there was monastics at that time ascetics who were taking sanyasa and so he also created this overarching 10 dashnami it's called shaivite ascetic order right so dashnami so there are 10 they are depending on the different locations there are the 10 these sanyasa orders within shankaracharya right okay so they are sanyasa means individuals who have taken a vow of asceticism right Okay, so they give up all their worldly possessions. Kind of yes, thing. they give up. They cannot have family. Yeah, they cannot be married. They even if they were married, now that marriage is no more. Right. Okay. Yeah, they don't have personal possessions. So they renounce everything. Yeah. Basically. So it's a renunciate life. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they wear orange clothes. Right. Only they can. You. It's not a fancy dress. Yeah. That you decide tomorrow, and then you that. Oh no! You know, Jeff now comes to India and wears 
all orange. Right. Okay. Now for this 10 days, Jeff is in India. He's a he's a <coughs> sannyasi. Yeah. That's disrespectful. Right. And it's not really to be done. It is very disrespectful to do such a thing. Even right. if I tell you to do it, please don't do it. Yeah, I won't. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it is disrespectful. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's that distinction we should have. Yeah. Like if you tell me I'm in Australia, and if you tell me, hey, Anand, just spit on the road and throw this trash on the street, I shouldn't do that. Yeah. I should have enough. Common sense. Common sense yeah. that I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Right? And so this, they wear the orange clothes. They have taken sannyasa. Okay. So they are the, the, the ten ash, uh, dashnami order. They are the ten aranya, one of the names. So the Swami who will be, let's say you take a, you get initiated into that sannyasa order. Right. You will be called such and such name. You will get a name. And then at the end, it will be attached aranya. Right. Meaning that you belong to that particular akhara, right? Okay, of the ten. Yeah. There is ashrama, Bharati, Giri, Parvata, Puri, Sagara, Tirtha, Vana, and Saraswati. Right. So, like, there was a great master around Vivekananda's time. He got deeply influenced by Swami Vivekananda. He was from Punjab, but then he took sannyasa. His name was called Swami Ramatirtha. Rama, Tirtha. So right. Tirtha is referring to that he has taken sannyasa, a vow of sannyasa from that particular Ora. order. Yeah. Do you follow me or not? Same like Saraswati. So for great master in, in, in Rishikesh he lived. His name was before doctor. He was a doctor, West, trained Western medical doctor. Kuppu Swami. Right. Okay. Then he came to Rishikesh. He got inspired. He came to Rishikesh. He took sannyasa, Diksha at Kalash Ashram in Rishikesh. Yeah. Okay. The name that he got was Swami Shivananda Saraswati. So Saraswati is also a name only as a suffix you can use if you have been, if you have taken Diksha of Sannyasa. Right. Same with Giri. Another a great friend of mine, his name, Abhayananda Giri, because he took sannyasa. Right. I cannot call myself Giri. I am Mehrutra. <laughs> yeah. Do you follow me? So yeah. surname, why? Because your surname, you're known by your surname, no? Your yeah. father's name and all of that. Yeah. So when you're taking sannyasa, you're giving up all that identification. That's part of the wow. Right, that so my family is not, I'm not known by my family name. Mm, even the now, surname is exactly, or My surname, I'm not totally differently born. Mm. Right? So my now surname is this. So only sannyasis get that. Do you follow me? If you do not take sannyasa, you don't get those surnames. Right. Do you follow me? Yeah. So, for example, even, you know, like, uh, you look at, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, for example, he did not use Giri or Parvata or Saraswati. Mm. Do you follow me? Why was that? Because he did not take sannyasa. Right. He wore only white clothes. Yeah. It's all life. He did not wear orange. Yeah. Yeah. Right. His family name was Verma or something because he was born in Madhya Pradesh. He yeah. came, he studied there, but he did not take sannyasa. So he did not. While the his guru was Brahmananda. Saraswati. Yeah. Because he's, if you look at his pictures, he's wearing orange clothes. Yeah. Be, so because he's wearing all, meaning that he has taken a vow of renunciation, that he has no family, he has no children, he has no grandchildren, he has no wife or wives. 
so he's that sir that's the surname you follow yeah. so he created this now so if you go to swami shivananda's ashram in swami shivananda's ashram he also that you will find a statue of shankaracharya shankaracharya right. in rishikesh yeah. you can go there and you go there they are singing and chanting and uh, you know doing kirtan and doing all kinds of practices yeah you follow why is there shankaracharyas because they he has taken sanyasa and he has belong, accepted those dashnami so within that dashnami it belongs to rakhada where he took sanyasa so shankaracharya was who organized it yeah. so they claim that you follow not all now the in the current there are all these 10 ashramas are attached to the four different peethas right there is a debate as happens in humanity is there four ashrama did shankaracharya establish four or five in yeah. the south there is a little bit of a debate they say he established five yeah and some say it's four so the debate happens it yeah. becomes part of the politics so yeah and now there are currently the uh, four or five again depending on your thing and which is not a secret knowledge it's a common in the north there is the the, the jyotirmat seat is still vacant so there is a not accepted who is the shankaracharya there right so every shankaracharyas gets appointed there's a huge it's a, it's a big thing now who gets appointed there is a huge team and all the all the dashnami sadhus who pick the shankaracharya now these akhadas are involved right. in that right. then sanyasis can so only a sanyasi can be a shankaracharya right. right and the current shankaracharyas will point and so it's very simple you can google and you can see who are the current four shankaracharya shankaracharya so shankaracharya what his what he was is he's teaching from the whole tradition only yeah right right so now sometimes somebody who's teaching predominantly the uh, the shakta part of shankara's teaching so they are teaching the this is they are also shankaracharya so right. he's part of the whole luminous right tradition of india but he was not the only one yeah you follow so there are Shivananda, Swami Shivananda taught very voluminous in a very different way. You go to Amma in the south of India. Mm. She also has a sannyasa order. Right. So she herself is not. Right. So she her, she wears white. Right. So she has not taken sannyasa. Yeah. But she has within her matha within her ashram she has a sannyasa order also. People who wear orange. Right. and so they would i do not know which one but they would also then belong to within that particular they would belong to one of the one of the orders one of these orders yeah of the within the sanyasa the beauty of india is that shankaracharya is so revered and so but not everybody has to he's not like a pope yeah yeah you understand yeah. <laughs> like oh is no this is again the west tries to thrust this on india because they are colonized mind yeah. no if you try, come from that western standpoint this is a whole different way of thinking yeah you come and you try to declare shankaracharya as a pope because you're looking for a pope right my friend stop looking for yeah, a pope yeah, this yeah. is not a pope culture yeah. <laughs> it's different <laughs> right so shankaracharya not to be a powerful yogi you know you don't have to think of shankaracharya as the ultimate authority no you must you can respect him yeah you love him you admire him yeah but that does not mean you only teach what what he wrote and again he wrote voluminous but mm. there was a lot he did not write commentaries on all yeah. <laughs> all the scriptures yeah. also right he left out quite a lot because again he left his body at the age of again in his early 30s 
and there was he was studying and writing and teaching there's a lot to do i mean it's not so easy at that time you had to write by hand there was no transcriber yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and is the people who go into those orders do they normally come from like a family of um you know people that that kind of like come through or are they like can they come from different countries or can they come from like different places or are they normally like indian people or like from india for example or from like a tradition or from like a lineage of like you know people where they're almost like it's part of their destiny no, see really. no uh, to be a shankaracharya to be appointed a shankaracharya to be elected you have to have education from a very young age you have to be very versed in sanskrit very versed well in the shastras and you should have a great command of the language and also there is a specific fundamental requirements which are there follow just like any it's a now it has become a specific position which is fundamental yeah rules and regulations you can't be you can't claim tomorrow you are a sankracharya or i can't claim so many i have many sanyasi friends but they, i cannot claim them that they are sankracharya yeah. even though they are heads of ashrams right, right. many of my close friends Uh, have this privilege of being because being born and growing up there privilege of being in close association with great many heads of different ashrams some with surname saraswati with their who have saraswati order from giri order different right just in uh, even in sargashram there is saraswati yeah. who is heads of some ashram right yeah. so they, but they are not shankaracharya yeah. they are head of a huge organization yeah or even a small organization they might have certain different they might come from saraswati they might come from so they but they are not shankaracharya because that's a, it requires fundamental you cannot for us to be a shankaracharya you have basic qualifications are needed right you have to be certain command of language command of shastra sanskrit all of that clear and now that's a big process and that's why there is still and it's because it, again it gets a little bit mingled with religion there is a little bit confusion yeah so you know some politics comes in can be sometimes but it's a powerful position uh but as far as sanyasi is concerned any you can go and take sanyasa so it you can be a westerner also you can be from india you can be from malaysia you can be from singapore you can be from australia new zealand you can be coming to india and then you can go to a certain guru who is uh head of a certain ashram who is a sanyasi himself right and he will check you and you will see and you will then you can be given the diksha of a sanyasi but then you have to take on a vow and you renounce everything you have to renounce you have to renounce family you have to renounce you know you cannot decide to wear other color clothes the next day yeah you have to you can wear over over it but your base clothes have to be that yeah right your orange your asana you can't decide to be married if you get married then you have to renounce your title you oh. cannot be now a sanyasi yeah right because sanyasi means you cannot have family children all of that yeah you have to renounce that that doesn't mean you can't have relation with them you can see them every now and then but you you don't live with your family anymore you can't be yeah. a sanyasi and living so that can be but shankaracharya is only require base requirements are there about to become one right so but the to be initiated into that dashanami order means taking rin, a vow of renunciation you follow me it's a it's a sanyasa renunciate order yeah it's not just 
you know, like these days, anybody can call. Somebody asked me this question in LA. So what does it take to, to call yourself a yogi? Well, anybody can call them now. Yeah. Or what does it take? Somebody asked me the other day, what does it take to call yourself to be a rishi? I said, well, nothing. Apparently, you can call yourself a rishi anytime. <laughs> yeah. Anybody can. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, but, so that India is very kind in that sense. Yeah. It's very kind and it's a very accepting culture in that way. It's a very accepting people. The, the base of the spirituality of India is such. It is beautifully uh, accepting of people. Right? But then there are facts are facts. There are certain things. The rules are also accepted and respected within. And that's why this is a beautiful thing which is continuing. Yeah. No, and it's actually, I suppose, like people that can call themselves a Maharishi or a sannyasi. You know, but, but the sannyasi has like rules that you need to yes, abide by. Whereas exactly. like a Maharishi, if you do have a lot of knowledge and you've got that stuff, then you know, you're allowed to do that. Yeah, or not. Let's say even if you don't have knowledge, right. you can still call. <laughs> Nobody's going to come and say, hey, you can't call yourself that. Yeah, right. Do you follow me? Yeah. You, you can just say that. Yeah. Like you can say, you know, doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you follow me? Yeah. That does not mean on a, what it means is a great seer. That's yeah. what it means. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you follow? But India is a beautiful country like that, right? Like Baba word. Yeah. Baba in India is used for grandfather. Baba is used also just an old person. Yeah. Hmm? Baba is also used for an ascetic. Yeah. You follow me, you know? Yeah. So it's all it's very all much accepted. Yeah. In that sense. So are you able to tell us who the current Shankaracharyas are? Yeah, I mean, it's a common knowledge. It's available, you know, you can search it and you can find it. Right. But uh, yeah, the four current, you know, in uh, Swami Nishchalananda, Saraswati. Again, what is this? Because he's a sannyasi. Right. You follow me? Shri Bharata Tirtha. Tirtha now. Yeah. See, it's a Tirtha because he's coming from that sannyasa order. Tirtha sannyasa order. Yeah. Then uh, Swami Sadananda Saraswati coming from the Saraswati. Where, that's where Saraswati is just referring to where he took the Diksha of Sannyasa. Right. Tirtha referring to where he took the Diksha of Sannyasa. And the north there is... Uh, Dispute is there in the four Sri Avimukta Shanand, sorry, Avimukta Swaresanand, there is, and Swami Vasudevanand. So there is a dispute as to who is the. So you know, there are the four Pithas which are recognized by everyone, and then there are also the fifth one which is recognized by some. Right. Not all. Yeah. So there is the in Dwarka, the head is Swami Swarupananji. In uh, Puri, there is Swami Nishchalanand ji. In uh, Kamakoti, Kanchi, there is Swami Jayendra ji. And uh, Kashi Sumeru Pita, which is again. Recognized by some, not recognized by others, right. is Swami Narendranandji. Okay. In uh, Joshimat, and in the north, you know, there has been a, been a little bit more complicated history with uh, court cases and all of that. Yeah. There is a little bit dispute, but currently the most well accepted after this, there was a court case in Allahabad, right? Hmm. 
where the court uh, issued that uh, one a very strong warning for anybody claiming title of shankaracharya without proper backing and clearing and that it can be lead to right you know yeah. complications yeah so right now the yeah so the most popularly currently with the consensus is swami avik mukteshwarananda right again some might agree some might not but that's but that's the most yeah, yeah there is him and uh, he's the most right and is there an, one. and is there another one that's contending for it that lives in hardwar near rishikesh no right you see to be to be even to you have to have certain basic minimum requirements are there right certain minimum requirements are there which have to be fulfilled right and uh, again so the the shankaracharya are uh, that does not mean that all the teachers and gurus in india will go to them and and uh, study with them right. it's a, it's again a teacher a tradition of respect and reverence so wherever they are you know they are given due respect and uh, and they are in charge of these four centers and all the temples that come under them and all the you know ashrams that come under them and and again a prerequisite is very well you have to be versed in uh, you know sanskritam and and uh, traditional knowledge so you know before when you said that when i was asking about the online part and you said that you would consult with your elders or you would consult with different people would is that part of like people who you would consult with not needed yeah not I mean, needed. Not yeah no i mean that's not needed yeah uh, again this is not some pop culture yeah right this yeah. is a very different reality it's a very different reality so when uh, you know vivekananda or swami shivananda saraswati right who is a sanyasi of the saraswati order when he went and taught he asked checked in with his guru yeah right yeah, swami chidananda when he taught he checked with his guru yeah swami shivananda that's all yeah right you have to check this is when yogananda went he was commanded by divine mother and he went and taught yeah yes or no yeah so now swami parmansa gananda was of the giri order Right. right his sanyasa was giri order yeah he is teaching kriya mm. but is within the giri right because he took sanyasa there yeah yeah so you know when parmansa yogananda felt he felt that inner inspiration and then he you know took the counsel of his guru and he of shri yukteswar giri right so, so shri yukteswar's teachers was lahiri mahashaya right lahiri mahashaya was not a sanyasi mm. he was a householder shri yukteswar took sanyas and so his last name became giri he's shri yukteswar giri right and parmansa yogananda was initiated by him into sanyas and then he so parmansa yogananda was a, he took the monastic order he took the sanyasa right lahiri didn't lahiri had children and family hmm. right but then he was called lahiri mahashaya he was not giri or tirtha you follow me yeah so even though he's the master of shri yukteswar right yeah <laughs> so these are important to be aware of. yeah it's really interesting when you see it all laid out like that because exactly. then you can really understand how it all works and actually how the 
yeah. lineage and tradition. It Absolutely. all like fits into each other and how Absolutely. it all works. Yeah, a lot of times we've looked at things isolated, but once you start seeing the expansive way that it... Yeah, I mean, you have to realize, like, the, 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 these are geniuses. Like, if you look, for example, Paramahansa Yogananda's, and you read the autobiography, right? In his uh, chapter, you know, I recommend anybody, everybody to read this book. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I love that book. And so he's speaking about, you know, he's writing about his childhood experiences that he goes into the attic and Divine Mother appeared to me. Yeah. Yes. And so when, so obviously he's saying that Divine Mother is within you. He's not saying that, oh, there is some alien entity. Right now you say, oh, Yogananda was saying, oh, he's, there is God and God. Come on. That just shows your immaturity. You do not understand yeah. what he's saying there. He's talking about a profound transcendental experience he's having. And so he comes about Divine Mother. So he, that was his experience. But when he goes to America, he creates the, you know, he put that picture. Right? A lot of time when master, masters went to, to the West, they created this kind of altar pictures yeah. to give their students a certain, you know, a certain object. Yeah. You know, so Maharishi Mahesh Yogi created his artwork. Yeah. Showing a holy tradition. Yeah. yeah. It's just a, it's a representation. Yeah. You follow, which doesn't all just belong to him. Yeah. So Paramahansa Yogananda created, he created. When he went, he put Sri Krishna and he put Christ, right? As this, yeah. And then he put uh, Babaji, Lahiri Mashaya, Sri Yukteswar, hmm. right? That was his brilliance. Yeah. Now, if you go to Sri Yukteswar or Puri Ashram, you don't find that lineage photo. Yeah, right. You follow me or not? Yeah. You will find Lahiris and Babaji. You don't find, you know, yeah. uh, Christ or anything. But that does not mean that, oh, Parmansa Yogana did something incorrect. No, he did it because he wanted to open that teaching, but he did not want the, the Indians to be, so he did also Krishna. Yes, beautiful. Krishna consciousness, Christ consciousness. Yeah. Because he's trying to create unity, yeah. not separation. Yeah. Right? He's trying to create unity. Yeah. And so if you, even the same with Buddha's teachings, if you study truly the teachings of the Buddha, truly understand it, and you see even in that teachings there is evolution and growth and how they diversified. Like, you know, uh, what became later, what is now called the Vajrayana tradition, you know, which started with Padma Sambhava and then later with, you know, Tilopa and different teachers who went, who came, all of them came to India and studied and these teachings were traveling across Southeast Asia at that time. And then even Vajrayana, there is mantra and all of that, right? So the Dalai Lama said that you, you know, it's very difficult to encounter your own Buddha nature without leaning on the mantra. Mm. So Buddha did not just teach once. He, you know, he really realized and then as he sat into the seat of the teacher, he kept teaching. I mean, he lived a long life till his 90s. So he taught, he was a phenomenal, the, the worth of his teachings is, Quite remarkable. Yeah. And as he, different stages of his life, he taught differently, right? He taught different things. Yeah. That is to be, to be understood. Yeah. Can you explain to us how like Kirtan works in terms of like, you know, chanting the names of gods and stuff like that? You see, again, the beauty of the tradition Indian spirituality is let's say if someone says, I am God. And if you truly understand the spirituality of India, the spiritual teachings of Sanatan Dharma, I'm sorry for using the word India actually, of the Sanatan Dharma, 
say yes. It's not blasphemy. Yes. Realize it. Yes, you are God. Am I? Yes. Realize it. God is within you. Realize it. Someone says, there is only God. Yes. Everything is God. Yes. God is a man. Yes. God is a woman. Yes. God is formless, absolute. No, God. Yes. <laughs> because these are levels of understanding. Mm. You see? It will be absurd, again, to limit this phenomenal, wise, comprehensive teaching into a few words, in a few ways. So the Kirtan is a great teaching and technique of the heart. It's not about your singing to God and God. Somebody who says that obviously does not understand the teaching. But the base teaching is that God is within you. So you're not singing to some alien entity who might or might not exist. Yeah. So let us say there is there's two things. Let's say I was saying the other day, somebody asked this question. I said, well, two things. Either there is no gods and goddesses. What's wrong with music then? Chant. It's good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with... Or there is gods and goddesses. Then why not chant to gods and goddesses? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so what's yeah. the problem? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so the, the teaching of the Kirtan is a beautiful technique. It's a devotional technique. And it is used in all traditions. Hmm. It, has, it does good. It is research. This is not just an opinion. This is research. When people come together and sing in community with heart-centered awareness, not just some, you know, which is purely about second chakra activity, but more about heart activation. Hmm. It does, it improves your brain health. It improves your cardiovascular health. It releases stress. It generates oxytocin in your body. It has phenomenal range of benefits which are measurable. Hmm. So it's not just some fluky thing. Yeah. So the Kirtan is a technique part of our tradition, which is being turned in all ashramas you go. In all ashramas there is Kirtan. In all. You go to Badrinath, Peter, established by Shankaracharya, there is Kirtan morning to night there. Yeah. Yes? Yes. People are chanting and everybody is welcome. If you go as a uh, man of European ancestry and you go there and you start chanting with them, they will include you, absorb you in them. They will not say, hey, go away. They yeah. will welcome you yeah. and they will appreciate you. Yeah. Right? Because it, and it's some teaching of the heart. It's not about, it's about getting into that state of the heart. Yeah. Out of the mind, they're just trying to get lost in all words, fancy words and fancy vocabulary, all just weaving cobwebs of, cobwebs of you know, false knowledge only. But to really enliven the experience yeah. of that. So Kirtan is about that is getting into that state, activating the heart energy to get into that deep receptive state. Yeah. It's not about calling on to someone, hoping, I mean, this is absurd thing. If you don't understand this, then what to do about it? Yeah. Right? Then it just shows fundamental, basic misunderstanding. Yeah. And anybody who has joined Kirtan can verify from their own experience that when you get into that bhava, into that deep state, how you feel, you feel in a very elevated state yeah, and it can resolve a lot of emotional conflict within you. Yeah. Because it is you are tuning into the highest love, the love of existence, the yeah. love of being. Because that's what they're teaching. God is love. Yeah. So why not get into that state, the vertical love? Yeah, beautiful. Right? As God within, so God without. That's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, the teachings of the Ishtas, the different aspects of the sacred, the, you know, there is different, the ocean is one. But to, it would be naive to think that no matter which beach you go to, the ocean will behave in the same way. 
even a surfer knows that even in the same beach you know even same area in sydney they yeah. would go to different beaches have different kind of waves yeah. it's one ocean yeah. but the waves express differently the temperature we were just in uh, you know in harvey bay, harvey bay. Yeah. full of this incredible majestic beings whales yeah. and guess what the whales also sing yeah <laughs> yeah right? yeah beautiful song yeah and so singing is a really healthy thing so anybody saying singing is oh, come on don't be enemy of music no. is wonderful and somebody who's been taught properly who has studied the tradition properly understands there is a distinction between there are certain mantras which are not to be put to music in that way yeah right there are certain parts of the teachings with the mantra which have they are more they are not sound formulas yeah they have to be used in a specific manner for a desired result yeah yeah they are part of a different expression of the teaching yeah then there are kirtans chants which are designed for a, for this heart experience which are which you can put to different music which can you can have innovation where you can bring community together and sing out loud yeah. because it's designed to get you into a specific heart state and in that even if you are slightly pronouncing with an accent it's okay because there is nobody judging you yeah yeah including the people <laughs> who are sitting in india you yeah. know what i'm saying yeah. they even the gods aren't judging yeah even <laughs> god this is there is no judgment <laughs> judgmental god sitting there <laughs> right in india if you yeah. see that the indian people appreciate it somebody who is doing it genuinely yeah. respectfully yeah right from a place of deep respect from a place of deep love and of course you can do every anything in a disrespectful manner you yeah. can use anything yeah. whether it is a statue whether it is a orange robe whether it is a mala whether it is anything you can be disrespectful right that's but otherwise the kirtan as a part of the tradition it's used all over india yeah every ashram has chanting right yeah. and everybody is open and doors are open anybody can come you don't need to convert you don't need to believe in anybody can come no. irrespective of your skin color and you can sing even if you have a bad voice you can sing and everybody will appreciate you yeah. sometimes when i was growing up in india i would walk you know and some of the babas are chanting in the morning they have done their sadhana they have done their morning practice and then i would hear they are playing this dhapli the dhol you know two side drum yeah and they're singing and sometimes if you just heard it purely on a sensory level surface level you say oh my god it's so awful <laughs> the voice is no yeah because just tum 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 they're singing and then this have they have the little claps and this that's all there's not no other in, instrument nothing but then you have to listen from a deeper place you find such beauty in it such love such heart experience so yeah you would start crying listening to that so it is it's part of this whole that's why shankara charya hmm. wrote so many devotional chants yeah yeah so interesting yeah. <laughs> and he created uh, these temples yeah and even in this learning peethas jyotirmat you know shringeri everywhere there's a devi it's very interesting yeah. where every day puja happens right so there is certain mantras which are not to be put into kirtan format of put to music but somebody who has learned properly who understands and knows those differences yeah but then what about the mantras that were used in terms of like a japa practice for example yes. like um you know what is the purpose of a japa practice or the power of one i mean i know that i've had my own you see yeah you, everybody anybody who has who has a brain <laughs> at least in the human level knows japa which is repetitive thought patterns mm. and you know the power of the repetitive thought patterns i don't think you need to yeah. talk about you really uh, have a brain 
mind you know that yeah. repetitive thought patterns how they uh, what effect they have on your psychology what the effect they have on your physiology what the effect they have on your life yeah so there this is again as i said it's a incredible technology these teachers were geniuses yeah. i'm i cannot i'm always in awe when i the more i study the more i'm in awe of these incredible masters uh, you know who came from india it is true geniuses so the, the they work with the science of sound and so there are different mantras designed for different aspects as i said there are certain aspects of the teaching certain writings which are kirtan devotional which are more about the heart to really nourish and activate the heart and biochemically which is generating bonding chemicals and oxytocin a feeling of belonging a sense of you know uh, generates a different effect there are specific uh, bija mantras which are designed for use as tools for meditation antara dharana points right as a point of dharana to really take the mind to a deeper level of silence then there are longer frame mantras which are generate designed to generate specific patterns of energy within us activate certain aspects within our within our energy right certain certain patterns of thought certain patterns of energy for example the gayatri mantra coming from the rigveda it is one of the most powerful japa practices used all over india mm. all over even uh, in every every place in corner of india by all different traditions oh, sorry of different schools of uh, learning yeah. very powerful Gayatri mantra is really tuning, generating a positive mind, upward spiral. So the different mantras, Japa mantras, are different sound formulas. They are different like algorithm. When you take a certain medicine, a molecular medicine, that molecular medicine goes in and initiates a certain response from the body, right? For which has a creates a certain shift in the body. So these are formulas. which we are taking and when we are holding them over a period of time like let's say you have one thought you just have a thought once it doesn't do anything you just have one thought but when that thought starts to repeat itself then it has an effect on you mm-hmm. so same thing is with the japa practice these japas are sound formulas they are they have intellectual meaning but also more powerful is the experiential meaning of them So when we start using the japa mantras they d- generate a certain shift in the energy and when we hold that for a, over a period of time then that effect gets much deeper more pronounced and it's a practice which is in aid of the other practice the integrated part of the integrated approach yeah it's a very powerful very effective so within the mantra japa mantra you're not repeating a prayer you know it's not about manipulating relative reality this is you cannot that's a base teaching there is no point of trying to manipulate the more you know you try to manipulate you become the manipulated yeah, yeah so there is no it's about tuning understanding the different aspects of the manifest reality and working with it yeah <coughs> right so the yeah. mantra japa practice is very powerful yeah and even just with like jyotish for example as well like i mean how do we harmonize the revelations from like jyotish with vedanta's principle that the self is the sole true reality like you know a lot of times we how do we like navigate the part the intricate play of karma with the celestial or the starry world <laughs> see that there is no starry world <laughs> <laughs> there is no starry world out there right it's all here yeah depends who you are yeah right what is your level of consciousness 
what you call there there does not call itself there right. there what you call is here or there right so there is only something you point to from the point of view of the universe everything is here we live in an interrelated reality again this tradition is a tradition of geniuses i am again so it's a vedanga jyotish is a vedanga one of the the first masters of jyotish is considered prashara who is the who is prashara father of vyasa yeah right so jyotish is the whole even ayurveda is a atma based hmm. medicine right it's all interconnected it's not like is taking it's all based on the understanding of deep underlying unity of reality and so jyotish is not about trying to manipulate and how i can control it's about understanding self it's about understanding the flow of time in your place in it yes yeah and how to tune and how to tune yourself in the relative field so you can express your highest nature and fulfill the highest good mm-hmm. that's what it is about right it is a it's called the eye of the veda jyotisha right jyotish in sanskrit jyoti light so jyotisha the science of light but what is this offering light the light of self mm. so it's often called the way veda sees jyotish and what is the veda ultimately the knowledge of self mm. so it is a tool to help us understand ourselves because you have to be honest our tradition is a tradition of honesty our masters are not trying to be something they are not yeah. trying to make some huge claims no is a tradition of humility while claiming magnificence and the wholeness of the existence still being anchored in reality the reality is what that yes you are that but you are also this and anybody who denies that is delusional we go through phases of life we go through different experiences of life we live our life in time so it is about studying time mm. studying who gaining insight upon different patterns of yourself is it not i mean if we do not we say only if i say only you do just breath work and everything else will follow no that's not hmm. if i say no just you do meditation no if i say only just jyotish understand everything no it will absolutely be useless if you doing just jyotish without having a proper whole framework of knowledge and just jyotish no it will be useless yeah it has to be understood in the whole alliance of the tradition of the whole teaching and is a powerful thing to give you insight about your own patterns it's the original psychology and yeah. much beyond that much better yeah much much better much more effective you can <laughs> yeah. really gain clarity for those who do not know you know it's like if it, i if somebody who has never seen a plane never understands what plane is and he has you know he only has gone on a horseback always yeah and says a horseback is enough before as well I know for myself like being a coach and coaching people through different things before I had Jyotish I was relying on someone else telling me kind of what was wrong with them or like what they felt was wrong with them whereas like once I did Jyotish and I was able to look at their chart I didn't have to get them to tell me anything anymore because I could see what part of life they were up to or what was going on or maybe what energies were playing out you know yeah, it's you know it's what? again it's you are the self yeah. and you know it's all about the self it's just all about the self and it is just gaining a deeper understanding on yourself and your interaction with the relative field of reality 
we always say in our teachings, right? What is the primary upaya? The first upaya, the first remedy is your consciousness state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Desha, kala, patra. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Desha, kala, patra. Patra is the most fundamental. Patra is the state, consciousness state of the being. And so it's just one of the tools which we use to help serve the individual's consciousness state, to help them gain a higher consciousness state. Yeah. And gaining understanding of yourself your energies your time and understanding your life story oh then you feel okay this occurred at that time understand and see and what is that time you're in how you can use the to the highest potential the fact is if you are a farmer you know and you are in the winter it will behave like winter so you have to understand it's the winter yeah going and seeing you make a vision board that it is the summer it won't become the summer yeah right you can transcend and then think it's a summer it will not become the summer yeah. to come out it is the winter <laughs> yeah so it will be helpful for you to understand oh it is the winter yeah. wonderful nothing wrong with the winter it's not about what's wrong yeah it's about all being right and how to utilize it in the best way possible it's very simple it's not about trying to control anything right it's not about trying to control anything manipulate anything no 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 <laughs> all <laughs> yeah this is some it's a totally incorrect approach it's about uh, being in tune being in tune that's what the whole uh, jyotish was designed it's only for that yeah to practice jyotish in any other way is useless to try to use it as a knowledge to control or figure out stuff in the future no it's about understanding yourself and the flow of time and how to utilize it in the highest way possible yeah that's beautiful well thank you so much for your time today it's been a really enlivening and enlightening conversation. Uh, I look forward to many more of these deep discussions with you in the future. Thank you, Anandji. Thank you. You've been listening to Sattva Himalayan Wisdom. Remember to subscribe, like and share. If you want more wisdom or knowledge, visit our websites at sattvayogaracademy.com or sattvaconnect.com.